I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. So uh, I'm just going to read. Um, this is the very opening of the book. Uh, if I try to read something from later, it's full of uh, spoilers and, uh, and vocabulary that you don't know yet. So it seems like uh, starting from the beginning is the, way to, is the way to do this. Do your neighbors burn one another alive? was how Fra Orlo began his conversation with Artisan Fleck. Embarrassment befell me. Embarrassment is something I can feel in my flesh, like a handful of sun-warmed mud clapped on my head. Do your shamans walk around on stilts? Fra Orlo asked, reading from a leaf that, judging by its brownness, was at least five centuries old. Then he looked up and added helpfully, you might call them pastors or witch doctors. The embarrassment had turned runny. It was horrifying my scalp along a spreading frontier. When a child gets sick, do you pray? Sacrifice to a painted stick? Or blame it on an old lady? Now it was sheeting warm down my face, clogging my ears and sanding my eyes. I could barely hear Fra Orlo's questions. Do you fancy you will see your dead dogs and cats in some sort of afterlife? <laughs> Orlo had asked me along to serve as amanuensis. It was an impressive word, so I had said yes. <laughs> he had heard that an artisan from Extramuros had been allowed into the new library to fix a rotted rafter that we could not reach with our ladders. It had only just been noticed, and we didn't have time to erect proper scaffolding before Appert. Orlo meant to interview that artisan, and he wanted me to write down what happened. Through drizzly eyes, I looked at the leaf in front of me. It was as blank as my brain. I was failing. But it was more important to take notes of what the artisan said. So far, nothing. When the interview had begun, he had been dragging an insufficiently sharp thing over a flat rock. Now he was just staring at Orlo. Has anyone you know ever been ritually mutilated because they were seen reading a book? Artisan Fleck closed his mouth for the first time in quite a while. I could tell that the next time he opened it, he'd have something to say. I scratched at the edge of the leaf just to prove that my quill had not dried up. Fra Orlo had gone quiet and was looking at the artisan as if he were a newfound nebula in the eyepiece of a telescope. Artisan Fleck asked, why don't you just spiel in? Spiel in, Fra Orlo repeated to me a few times as I was writing it down. I spoke in bursts because I was trying to write and talk at the same time. When I came, that is, before I was collected, we, I mean they, had a thing called a spiely. We didn't say spiel in, we said cruise the spiely. Out of consideration for the artisan, I chose to speak in fluckish. And so this staggering drunk of a sentence only sounded half as bad as if I'd said it in Orth. It was a sort of moving picture, Orlo guessed. He looked to the artisan and switched to fluckish. We have guessed that to spiel in means to partake of some moving picture praxis, what you would call technology, that prevails out there. 
Moving picture, that's a funny way to say it, said the artisan. He stared out a window as if it were a spiely showing a historical documentary. He quivered with a silent laugh. It is praxic orth, and so it sounds quaint to your ears, Fra Orlo admitted. Why don't you just call it by its real name? Spieling in? Yeah, because when Fra Erasmus here came into the math 10 years ago, it was called Cruising the Spiely, and when I came in almost 30 years ago, we called it Farspark. The avout who live on the other side of yonder wall, who celebrate Apert only once every 100 years, would know it by some other name. I would not be able to talk to them. Artisan Fleck had not taken in a word after Farspark. Farspark is completely different, he said. You can't watch Farspark content on a Spiele. You have to upconvert it and reparse the format. <laughs> Fra Orlo was as bored by that as the artisan was by talk of the hundreders, and so conversation thudded to a stop long enough for me to scratch it down. My embarrassment had gone away without my noticing it, as with hiccups. Artisan Fleck, believing that the conversation was finally over, turned to look at the scaffolding that his men had erected beneath the bad rafter. To answer your question, Fra Orlo began. What question? The one you posed just a minute ago. If I want to know what things are like extramuros, why don't I just spiel in? Oh, said the artisan, a little confounded by the length of Fra Orlo's attention span. I suffer from attention surplus disorder, Fra Orlo liked to say, as if it were funny. <laughs> First of all, Fra Orlo said, we don't have a speely device. Speely device? Waving his hand as if this would dispel clouds of linguistic confusion, Orlo said, whatever artifact you use to speel in. If you have an old Farspark resonator, I could bring you a down converter that's been sitting in my junk pile. We don't have a Farspark resonator either, said Fra Orlo. Why don't you just buy one? This gave Orlo pause. I could sense a new set of embarrassing questions stacking up in his mind. <laughs> Do you believe that we have money? That the reason we are protected by the secular power is because we are sitting on a treasure hoard? That our millenarians know how to convert base metals to gold? But Fra Orlo mastered the urge. Living as we do under the Cartesian discipline, our only media are chalk, ink, and stone, he said. But there is another reason, too. Yeah, what is it, demanded Artisan Fleck, very provoked by Fra Orlo's freakish habit of announcing what he was about to say instead of just coming out and saying it. <laughs> well, it's hard to explain, but for me, just aiming a speely input device or a far spark chamber or whatever you call it, a speely captor, at something doesn't collect what is meaningful to me. I need someone to gather it in with all their senses, mix it round in their head, and make it over into words. Words, the artisan echoed, and then aimed sharp looks all around the library. Tomorrow, Quinn's coming instead of me, he announced, and then added a little bit defensively, I have to counter-strafe the new Clanex recompensators, the fan-out trees starting to look a bit clumpy, if you ask me. I have no idea what that means, Orlo marveled. <clears throat> Never mind, you ask him all your questions. He's got the gift of gab. And for the third time in as many minutes, the artisan looked at the screen of his G-jaw. We'd insisted he shut down all of its communications functions, but it still served as a pocket watch. 
He didn't seem to realize that in plain sight out the window was a clock 500 feet high. I put a full stop at the end of the sentence and aimed my face at a bookshelf because I was afraid that I might look amused. There was something in the way he'd said, Quinn's coming instead of me, that made it seem he'd just decided it on the spot. <coughs> Fra Orlo had probably caught it too. If I made the mistake of looking at him, I would laugh and he wouldn't. The clock began chiming provener. That's me, I said. Then I added, for the benefit of the artisan, Apologies, I must go wind the clock. I was wondering, he said. He reached into his toolbox and took out a poly bag, blew off sawdust, undid its seal, which was of a type I had never seen before, and withdrew a silver tube the size of his finger. Then he looked at Fra Orlo, hopefully. I don't know what that is, and I don't understand what you want, said Fra Orlo. A speely captor. Ah, you have heard about Provener, and as long as you are here, you'd like to view it and make a moving picture? The artisan nodded. That will be acceptable, provided you stand where you are told. Don't turn it on. Fra Orlo raised his hands and got ready to avert his gaze. The warden regulant will hear of it. She'll make me do penance. I'll send you to the Ita. They'll show you where to go and more in this vein, for the discipline was made up of many rules, and we had already made a muddle of them in Artisan Fleck's mind by allowing him to venture into the decenarian math. I'd been using my sphere as a stool. I traced counterclockwise circles on it with my fingertips, and it shrank until I could palm it. My bolt had shifted while I'd been sitting. I pulled it up and yanked the pleats straight as I careered around tables, chairs, globes, and slow-moving fras. I passed under a stone arch into the scriptorium. The place smelled richly of ink. Maybe it was because an ancient fra and his two fids were copying out books there, but I wondered how long it would take to stop smelling that way if no one ever used it at all. A lot of ink had been spent there, and the wet smell of it must be deep into everything. At the other end, a smaller doorway led to the old library, which was one of the original buildings that stood right on the cloister. Its stone floor, 2,300 years older than that of the new library, was so smooth under the soles of my feet that I could scarcely feel it. I could have found my way with my eyes closed by letting my feet read the memory worn into it by those gone before. The cloister was a roofed gallery around the perimeter of a rectangular garden. On the inner side, nothing separated it from our weather except the row of columns that held up its roof. On the outer side, it was bounded by a wall, openings in which gave way to buildings such as the old library, the refectory, and various chalk halls. Every object I passed, the carven bookcase ends, the stones locked together to make the floor, the frames of the windows, the forged hinges of the doors, and the handmade nails that fastened them to the wood, the capitals of the columns that surrounded the cloister, the paths and bed of the garden itself, every one had been made in a particular form by a clever person a long time ago. Some of them, such as the doors of the old library, had consumed the whole lifetimes of those who had wrought them. Others looked as though they'd been tossed off in an idle afternoon, but with such upside that they had been cherished for hundreds or thousands of years. Some were founded on pure, simple geometry, Others reveled in complication, and it was a sort of riddle whether there was any rule governing their forms. 
Still others were depictions of actual people who had lived and thought interesting things at one time or another, or barring that of general types, the deolator, the physiologer, the burger, and the slime. If someone had asked, I might have been able to explain a quarter of them. One day, I'd be able to explain them all. So that's the opening bit of anathem. It's being... It's being narrated by a roughly 18-year-old avowed, which means uh, somebody who has literally sworn a vow to live in, um, in this place called a math, uh, which uh, is built around a giant clock and has a, a wall in it pierced by a gate that opens once every 10 years. So uh, by definition, the people who live there are people who've, who've decided that they only want to have contact with the outside world every 10 years or so. And in the society of this world, they are they tend to be the, uh, the literate people, the scientists, the mathematicians, and so on. Um, I've been working on this project for uh, three or four years now, and uh, in the early going, as a way of getting into the mood, I would go to concerts of uh, medieval and Renaissance music whenever I could in the Seattle area. And that meant uh, frequently attending concerts by uh, a couple of groups called Capella Romana, that's a Portland-based group that does Byzantine chant, and the Tudor Choir, which is a Seattle-based group that does Renaissance polyphony, um, kind of similar to the, the Talus scholars, if you know who, who they are. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was going out to dinner with David Stutz, a friend of mine, ex-Microsoft uh, person who has retired and now works as a professional musician. And he and uh, our wives were going to a concert of a group called Trio Medieval, which again, as you can guess from the, the name, does, uh, does early a cappella choral music. And I, uh, over a couple of bottles of wine, explained the premise of this book. And um, we, spun up an idea that I assumed would disappear and never be heard of again after we sobered up, which was that it would be amusing to try to actually create the music that the, the avowed, the people in these concerts, would actually make. And structurally, uh, it might have a lot in common with medieval liturgical music of, of the planet Earth, but um, the, the, the key difference is that Instead of uh, glorifying a religious uh, idea, this music would have the purpose of, of glorifying some idea from mathematics or science or philosophy that the uh, devout felt to be particularly beautiful. And um, David went to work on that and has composed a number of pieces which are being uh, released today on a CD that um, is available through the Long Now Foundation. All profits from the sale of the CD once we've recouped the fairly minimal cost of production are going to go to the Long Now Foundation. And, uh, and David's here this evening with... <laughs> 
David's here this evening with some of the singers who uh, performed on the, the CD. You've already heard a couple of, of pieces. All of them are built around mathematical themes, except for one called uh, Lament for the Third Sack, which is a historical piece. Uh, so we're going to use, uh, we're going uh, to have um, performances by the, the singers as, uh, as interludes between the other parts of the program today. And uh, I can't remember which piece is next, but uh, we're going to transition to that now. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.